Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. Scripture reading this morning is taken from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because because what may be known of God is manifest in them, For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You may be seated. Congratulations, all the graduates, high school, college, vocational school, and etc. God is good. And all the time. Some people have a hard time reconciling the wrath of God with the love, the grace, and the mercy of God. And I'm going to do my best to explain how they're not mutually exclusive, but actually work in harmony. Um, I'll start with a story, and if my daddy knew that I was telling this story, he'd be a little, well, I don't know if he'd be embarrassed. He'd probably get on to me afterwards. But when Bree was about three years old, uh, she stayed a lot of weekends with mom and dad. And one particular Saturday, we were heading out to mom and dad's to you know, just have a meal with them, enjoy the afternoon. And we, Stephanie and I pulled in and when we pulled in and parked and got out, daddy was walking his brow furred. He had a sledgehammer and I got out and he was kind of coming my direction. I thought, what have I done that has made him so mad? But it just so happened that right before we pulled in, uh, the pizza delivery guy pulled in and it wasn't us that daddy was mad at. It was that pizza delivery guy. And he walked up and had that sledgehammer in his hand and he pointed it in that boy's face and he commenced to chewing him out. And Stephanie and I just stopped. I'm like, don't move. If, if we don't move, he, he won't see us. And he was letting this guy have it. And, and finally he said, now how much do I owe you? And the guy told him and he went and paid him. And, and we were looking at each other and walked up to mama and was like, what happened? Apparently, the pizza delivery boy, this kid, he had this little souped up hot rod of a car and he came barreling down the street and when he passed the house, he stomped on the brakes and when he stuck it in reverse, he squealed his tires and was flipping all around and when he came in mom and dad's driveway, he just about had it on two wheels to get in. Oh. So what had made daddy so mad is that Bree, little three-year-old Bree was outside with Nana and Papa and that guy was driving like a lunatic and he was letting him know that if that little girl would have been anywhere around how he was driving, he'd have hit her and killed her and daddy would have killed him. So afterwards while we're eating, um, we're talking about it and this, this is no joke. We were telling daddy what he said and how he looked and he couldn't remember a thing about it. I said, Dad, did you realize you had that sledgehammer in your hand? He said, did I? I said, yeah. I thought you was about to use it too. 
Do you realize that you said X, Y, and Z to this kid? Did I really? Yeah. See, he had gotten so mad. He, you know, you ever heard of people seeing red? It's like they have no clue what's going on in the moment. They're just so mad that they're talking, they're acting, whatever the case is. The reason daddy was so mad was because of something that he so loved. And anytime we love someone or something to that degree, whenever their safety or their well-being is jeopardized, it naturally makes us angry. Now, there's a, a right kind of anger, and that's a poor comparison when talking about the anger of God, but it's the best comparison I could come up with. Now, just because we get angry doesn't mean that it's always just and right. I watched a video <clears throat> yesterday, it was just about 23 second video. A little league baseball team. Boy, I watched it and I thought, you know, there is probably, and the caption said, here's why there are a shortage, why there's a shortage of children's referees, umpires, whatever. You can ask Johnny Miller about it. I'm sure he'd tell you a whole bunch of stories. But anyway, the umpire had said something to, and the parents were mouthing. And he turned around, he said, you wanna know what I said? I said that if your parents don't quit, I'm gonna forfeit the game. And they just started in and the umpire forfeited the whole game and walked off the field the whole time telling them this is why they can't have as many umpires to make their games and their tournaments because the parents act like a bunch of jerks. I was waiting on an amen, but I didn't get one, that's okay. Maybe because some of you are the jerks when you go to your children's sports games. That's possible. Now, there are things worth being angry over. Children's sports games, I mean, I can see why you'd get angry over it. I'm a competitive person. That's the reason I don't play sports, because I get too angry. So I'm just like, you know, I just need to not do it. And it's better to, to, to maintain my Christianity than, than it is to lose my cool over a game with some kind of stupid ball. And that's not to say I'm anti-ball games. Just don't ask me to play on the church league basketball team. But that's not worth getting mad over. In the grand scale, let me tell you some things that are worth getting mad over. Poverty. It doesn't touch us, but we know people that are impoverished. Think about, have y'all heard about this baby shortage? Not, not baby shortage, but the baby... <laughs> The baby formula shortage is what I meant to say. We got plenty of babies. To, uh, that, was a, that was a slip. The baby formula shortage. Now, that's sad. Now, you know, uh, unless you nurse, uh, but for many families that don't depend on that, that's something worth getting mad over. It's also worth getting mad over the fact that, you know, there are people that are mistreated on the daily or that justice is elusive and various other things. But here's something that you and I never have to worry about. When God is angry, when God's wrath is poured out, it's not because He's as fickle-minded as what you and I are. It's because He is holy and because He is righteous. Think of it this way, because we're about to look at about three categories of, I guess you could say, sinners upon whom the wrath of God will be poured out. Many of us know or have someone in our close circle that we know that has or is battling an addiction of some sort. And they do so even to their own self-destruction. And it breaks our hearts. 
We have gone to them. Maybe you've staged an intervention. Maybe you've tried to arrange for them to seek appropriate medical care and recovery care and various other things. And maybe they've gone through it. And maybe they've come out good and they last a while, but they relapse. All these things. These are folks that we love. And if we could make the choice for them, if we could do it for them, we certainly would. But the fact is, no matter how brokenhearted we are, they still choose their addiction sometimes, sadly, and they choose it to their own detriment. As much as we want to fix that, we can't unless they want to. And so, here's, here's the thing that really gets me. Sometimes people ask the question, why would a loving God send people to hell? That's the wrong question. And let me tell you why. The question is trying to slip off the blame to God. Here's the question that ought to be asked instead, in my opinion. Why would a people who are rebellious, who are obstinate, who are depraved, and just plain out sinful, why would we not take up God on His offer of salvation? That's the right question. Not why would a loving God... Here's the thing. If people go to hell, it's not because a loving God sent people to hell. It's because a loving God sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins. He asked us to have faith in that Son and to obey the gospel and to walk in the light as He is in the light. If a person goes to hell, it's their own choosing. Because God has made every possible avenue available so that we don't have to. That is the righteousness and the justice of God. And leading into this passage, look at verse 17 if your Bibles are open to Romans chapter 1. Verse 17, where Paul is speaking about not being ashamed of the gospel, he says, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So Paul is transitioning from the righteousness of God, and it's really not much of a transition, but explaining the righteousness of God, Paul says there is the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. That's the good news, that we can be saved from sin, that we don't have to suffer God's wrath. But a part of the righteousness of God also entails the wrath of God. And the point demonstrates why the revelation of God's justice is necessary. In chapter 2, verses 5 and 16, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Verse 16, in that day when Jesus will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospels, according to my gospel, excuse me. But what Paul reveals is that the righteousness of God is shown in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you, you think and you say to yourself, okay, let me, let me try and get this straight. Because God is righteous, he offers salvation and forgiveness and mercy to a people that is undeserving. Yes. But also the people who persist in thwarting his will in disobeying His Son, they are storing up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Yes. You see, God, when He created the heavens and the earth, we had the perfect conditions. 
We were given fellowship with God. We were given a place to stay. We were given food to eat. We wanted for nothing. But it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough, and we chose to disobey and to rebel. And ever since then, that's what we've always done. God knew that would happen. But also, God knowing that would happen made a way to redeem us. Not because we deserved it, but simply because God loves and He wants us to be saved. Now, what's very fascinating, if you and I lived in first century Rome, this letter would sound differently to us than it does to us in the 21st century church. Um, the entire Roman system of justice, based on what Paul is saying here, would have been shaken to its core because guilty people are guilty and they deserve what the law gives them. But according to the righteousness of God, guilty people, yes, are guilty, but God is willing to acquit them of that guilt. He is willing to declare them righteous, not because of their own efforts, but because of Jesus, his son and what he did and because they trust in his son. The innocent person to the Roman justice system was the only one worthy of escaping punishment and being declared just. But according to the righteousness of God, the most guilty of all sinners that has faith in Jesus, that obeys the gospel, God will say to that sinner, you are just. You are guiltless. So let's look, if your Bible's open to Romans 18, uh, 1, excuse me, beginning verses 18 through the rest of this chapter, the three categories of people who will incur God's wrath. The first of whom are those who subject themselves constantly to idolatry. <clears throat> and I want, <clears throat> pardon me, I want you to notice that each category builds upon the previous and they all encompass the whole. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, or deity, depending on your translation, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they didn't glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful but because, excuse me, but became futile in their hearts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and, and four-footed animals and, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So if you go back in history as far back as the ancient Egyptians, when you look at their gods, you, you, you see here they served the, uh, the birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. All of the Egyptian gods were fashioned out of some, after some sort of animal. You know, you have some that have the bull's head, that have the snake, uh, uh, different types of birds. And, but as you progress from the Egyptian period of glory into the Greeks and the Romans, their gods are not like animals. Their gods, are they appear as humans. But here's the problem with the Greco-Roman uh, pantheon. Their God, if you've ever read any classical literature <coughs> that depicts 
or tell stories of the gods, they don't behave any better than any of the humans on earth. If anything, they re- it reads much like a dysfunctional family. And some philosophers came along the way, such people as Plato and Aristotle and others, and they said, these can't be true gods. And so there was a very popular strain of thought in the first century that there must be a God that is supreme over all creation. But the thing is, He can't be known, He can't be sought after. So when Paul arrived in Athens in Acts 17, and there's this statue with the inscription that says, to the unknown God, that was the God they believed was supreme, but that they couldn't know Him. And so that's where Paul began preaching his sermon from Mars Hill in the city of Athens. But attached to idolatry in those times was gross immorality and iniquity. Because of certain of the cults, they permitted certain types of behavior that is just simply sinful. And so from that idolatry came an immorality that Paul says is contrary to nature. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Sexual sins have been around as long as time has existed, probably. In Roman society, Roman men often weren't married off until they were in their late teens, early 20s. A Roman lady, young lady, could be married off as young as 13 or 14. And sometimes those young women, when they were married off at 13, 14, 15, whatever the case is, they may be the second wife of a much older husband. That's just how society worked. But in Roman society, it was not uncommon for a a young Roman man uh, to have his dalliances with his fellow men or even with the slaves that his parents owned, male or female. And even when a Roman man married, he had his wife that, according to Roman law, bore his offspring that inherited his estate, but he may also have his mistresses. And that was just something that was rather common. And sometimes the ladies of the house, they also had their gentlemen suitors, I guess you could say, in addition to their marriage. It was a very promiscuous society. And so Paul is pointing out, especially within those regards, how some were acting unnatural, contrary to nature. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, let me say this. Let me go on record. Obviously, if you read this passage, you don't have to connect the dots too hard. What he is speaking about is what we would refer to as homosexuality. Okay? But that is not all that he addresses because in the, in the following verses, he addresses several other sins that are also entailed within the category of sexual immorality. And a lot of times, we really don't like to talk a lot about it, mainly because we don't want to be called homophobic. And, and look, People are always going to throw out names if you disagree with them. And I'll say that, let me say this, you may or may not know this, but some of our loved ones in this congregation have close relatives that have chosen that lifestyle. 
And they're heartbroken over it. They've cried over it. They've prayed about it. They've talked to their loved ones, tried to urge them to repentance. And I've spoken with them. And the one thing, if you knew them, that you could ask them, has Stephen ever given the cold shoulder to that loved one? Has he ever been rude or spoken ill about them? And I'm hoping and almost willing to guarantee my life that they would say no. We can love people and be kind to people. But let me tell you something. The word of God says what the word of God says. I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm not going to amend it. I'm not going to make us feel good about it just because we happen to not like it. And I'll also say as we go forward reading these other sins, before we get all high and mighty about how morally superior we may think we are, we need to take stock of ourselves. And so before I point the finger in judgment at another human being made in the likeness and the image of God, I really want to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let me not be blind to my sins. Let me walk in your ways and according to your statutes. And this is something that Paul doesn't just address here, but he addresses elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites will inherit the kingdom of God. But notice what he says. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We think these folks are hopelessly lost. But let me tell you something. It was a lot or is equally prevalent or more prevalent <clears throat> in Paul's time. And he was able to give them the good news and many of them converted. Hope always stands. Hope is always there. But I want you to notice in a couple of <clears throat> passages, verse 24, notice the term vile passions. And verse 20, I'm sorry, that's verse 26. Verse 24, lust of their hearts. Verse 26, vile passions. And one thing that I see at least three times in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, is God giving up people. Now, I, I want to point this out because this, this to me is a bit scary. God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts. God gave them up to vile passions. In verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. If there's one thing I never want God to do, that is to give up on me. I never want to be so far gone that God just says, I have to give you over. I've done all I could. But with some of these folks, that's exactly what he had to do. He gave them up to their uncleanness. He gave them up to their passions. He gave them up to their minds. Much like how some of us have had to give up our loved ones to their addiction or whatever their struggle may be. You can give them the road. You can give them the blueprint. Ultimately, they have to take it. And if they choose not to take it, there's only so much that you and I can do. And there's nothing worse than that feeling of helplessness. We, some of us, understand it. And if we feel that way about people that we love here on earth, how do you think God feels about the idolaters, about the immoral, and finally about the iniquitous? I want you to take note of some of these passages. Some of them, I think, is going to surprise you. Verse 28, and even as they didn't like to retain God in their knowledge, 
God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. The New King James next says they are whisperers. Gossipers would be a better translation into something that we, that we would understand. Verse 30, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, invent, inventors of evil things. Notice this next one, disobedient to parents. We don't think about that, do we? Would you ever put disobedient to parents in the same category as sexual, immoral, evil-minded, violent, hateful? But there it is. Okay, let me, let me become a preacher for a second. Um, on a few occasions, I've, I've heard parents say, well, they're 18, what can I do? I, I get the point in some respect. Uh, First of all, if they live in your house, there's a lot that you, you can do. My house, my rules. That's how it goes. And I've told you can ask Cole, you can ask Bree. I have said, now, when you get old enough and you move out on your own, you do whatever you want. Mom and I will have laid the foundation. We will have given you all that we can to try to make you faithful to the Lord. If you choose to rebel, that's on you. But when you're in this house, you follow our rules. If you don't like it, go to your room, pack up things, and walk out that door, and there you go. But living in mom and dad's house, you're going to follow mom and dad's rules. That's all there is to it. In my house, my children have never told me what they're going to do. They ask permission. In our house, you will respond respectfully. Ma'am or sir, better follow. In our house, don't make me get the belt because I will use it. And I know some people, well, that's abuse. You shouldn't hit. You know what? If that was abuse, I was murdered one time. Anybody else been murdered one time by your mama and your daddy? Look at these hands going up every which way. I, I, I get, you know, it, yes, it can be abusive, and I'm wholeheartedly against abuse, but, you know, I, I will try and tell you what to do. I will raise my voice, and if I have to, I'll make you feel it. Anybody doesn't like it, that's just how we do things in my house. Be grateful you don't live in my house. But even when you're 18 and you're moved out, the commandment that says, honor thy father and thy mother has not expired. It doesn't mean I get to run your life, but I'm still your father. And guess what? You may not ask for it, but I will give you unsolicited advice and counsel because once you are a mama and a daddy, you never stop being a mama and a daddy. I don't care how old your children get. One of the saddest scenes I've ever had to see in my life was when my Uncle Bobby passed away. He had brain cancer, and it had eaten him all up. And we went to his funeral, and Mama was still alive. 
and she was in a wheelchair and, and my, my cousin rolled her up to the casket and she just stood up hugging him and kissing him like he was a little baby. She was still his mama. Okay, I'll quit being the preacher for a second. Disobedient to parents. I've pointed it out. I've harped on it. Now you know. Undiscerning. Untrustworthy. Unloving. Unforgiving. Unmerciful. Now, full stop. Some of us, maybe not in the immoral sins that Paul has pointed out, but in these iniquitous sins that he has pointed out, you and I can point at different ones and say, I struggle with that. Or I do that on the regular. So you see, none of us are angels. But let's keep reading verse 32. Knowing that the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, okay, let me back you up for a second. Doctors practice medicine. Lawyers practice law. So it would stand in comparison that sinners are habitual practitioners of sin. Now, maybe you go, I, I do that all the time. Okay, that's, that needs to stop, what, whatever it is. Maybe you go, I struggle with this from time to time. Well, okay, there's a difference in struggling with a sin and a temptation versus wholeheartedly just plunging in and making it a, a, a part of everyday life. But where we have to be most cautious is in making sure that when we do bad, that we call it bad, as much as we would apply that to another. Because the sad thing that we often see is that the things that society used to be considered sinful, the, based on these, these Christian beliefs, people now elevate and endorse, and they want you to do it too. Isaiah once said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Society will do what society will do. But you and I shouldn't be swayed by society so much as by the good news of the kingdom of God. And it's that good news that we should tell folks. It's that good news we should share. Hopefully none of us find no pleasure whatsoever in the fact that any of these people are liable to the wrath of God. And I pray that I not be among them. But if I'm not among them, it's not because of any good that is within me. It is because God is good, that Jesus ultimately gave that sacrifice. And because I have faith in Jesus, I don't have to suffer the consequences of my own sins. There was once on uh, a television program, I forget the name of it, some of you will know, uh, Antiques Roadshow. Thank you, I came up with it. Uh, there was a New York family in 2007 that became kind of famous in, in April of 2013. These folks had paid $3 
for what turned out to be a bowl from the Northern Song Dynasty of China that was over a thousand years old. And they didn't know what they had until someone told them what they had. And when they placed it on auction, no, I'm sorry, it wasn't Antiques Roadshow, but when they placed it on auction at Sotheby's auction house for sale, it was estimated to go for 200000 You're thinking, I paid three bucks for that. 200000 that's a great return. But a dealer from London purchased it for $2 million. How many of you would like to go yard selling and find something, pay three bucks for it, and sell it for $2 million? Wouldn't that be nice? We're not that fortunate. That's okay. But you think about it, why would the first owners ever sell it for $3? You know, it, well, because they didn't know what it was worth. They were just ignorant of what it was worth. And okay, we, we, we can understand that. We may shake our heads at it, but the truth is every day, men and women give up things more valuable than money, and they do it for something that's ultimately worthless. When we, as people, sacrifice our integrity maybe to take from an employer to, to, to be able to buy something that we want, we're sacrificing our purity and commitment to immorality. We sacrifice our purity and then we commit immorality because of our lusts. When children are ignored because their parents want to further their career or even ministry, they're giving up something that can't be regained for the sake of something that won't last. When you look at these sins, there's one thing in common that I found. Maybe you can find something different. And that is instant gratification. We are so used to being pleased instantly that we do not know how to delay gratification. Our children more so. I can get out my phone. I can order something and do the swipe. And guess what? I've made an order of something on Amazon.com and it's going to arrive at my house pretty soon. I can hop on there and check out the weather in no time. I remember when I was a kid, I was talking to mama about this. When I was a kid, we always had to watch the six o'clock news. Mama always wanted to watch it and you had to watch it up until the point of the weather forecast. After the weather forecast, she didn't care. But she won't know what the weather was. Why? I don't know. That's what mama wanted. So you had to wait for things. We don't have to wait today. And maybe that's a part of our problem is instant gratification. We never deny ourselves for greater happiness. We want to, well, it's like that, what is it, J.G. Wentworth. It's my money and I need it now, or I want it now. That's how we live. Drive through society, instant on the grip uh, news and various other headlines. And our appetites grow and we lose control and find that we've never been fully satisfied. We're happy for the moment. And then we keep on seeking happiness and we keep on, and guess what? We never find it. We never find it because the only peace or happiness that a person can ever truly have is the peace of God that surpasses all understanding in Christ Jesus. And when we look at ourselves as Christians, at how we've been forgiven and how loved we are, there are some things afterwards that just don't occupy as much of our attention as they used to. And here's the thing. No matter how bad life gets, there's one question I always ask myself and I encourage others to ask theirs. Bad circumstances, bad whatever it is, it's easy to get caught up in how bad things are. Ask and answer this question. Does God still love you? 
out of the mouth of babes? The answer will always be yes. So no matter how bad it is, God still loves me. He still wants to forgive me. I can make it. All right, we're about to stand and sing a song as we do every single week. I will say that these are not my favorite types of sermons to preach. I'd rather much be a positive, upbeat person, but I'm not going to be irresponsible. Preaching the gospel entails all of it, even the bits we don't like, even the bits I don't like. But when I look at the wrath of God, it gives me greater appreciation for the grace of God. God would not rather wrath, but grace be upon us. We don't earn it. We can't work hard enough for it. We can't be good enough for it. But yet God says, here it is. His son died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and in accordance with the Scriptures, rose on the third day. And God asked that if we have faith in that son, that that faith be verbally confessed, that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that we repent of our sins, that we be buried with Christ in baptism, to arise, to walk in newness of life, having our sins washed away, that we continue to grow, to walk in the light as He is in the light, that we exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, not the lust of the flesh. So if any of this has really pricked your heart and you think, I'm subject to God's wrath, walk away from it and come towards His grace and do so while we stand and sing.